Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, it's a digital banking service called Greenwood. The mission to provide financial services to underbank Black and Latino households. Well, what we found is the African-American and Latinx middle and upper class really aren't being served properly. That's broadcast executive and Greenwood co-founder and chairman Ryan Glover. He joins me in just a moment. But first this, local elections officials are under a tight deadline to finish another recount of the presidential election. Now counties have until Wednesday, just before midnight, to complete this count. At a press conference earlier today, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger says 50 of the state's 159 counties have finished their count. But he singled out one county in particular that he says is always behind. Fulton County knocked off work at 445 on Sunday and 5 o'clock yesterday. Announced they will scan from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. today. As of an hour ago, Fulton County only had eight of the 17 high-speed scanners going because of staffing shortages, as I understand it. They can still make it by our midnight Wednesday deadline, but they seem to want to make it a dramatic fi- uh, finish. And I think us in our office, and I think th- really the rest of the state is getting a little tired of always having to wait on Fulton County and having to put up with their dysfunction. The rest of the counties continue to make good progress, and that's good news. Shortly after that press conference, Fulton County Commission Chairman Rob Pitts had his own press conference to respond. But I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that within Fulton County, Georgia, there was no hanky-panky whatsoever with respect to the recent election. Zero. And I challenge anyone from the President of the United States office, his representatives, Secretary of State of Georgia's office to come forward with any proof that they have that would contradict what I'm saying. What I said before, and I'll say again today as loudly as I can, either put up or shut up, our elections in Fulton County are fair. We hold elections sacred in Fulton County. We have doubled the amount of money from $17 million to in excess of some $35 million that we will have spent on elections this year to get them right. Stay tuned. Meanwhile, another election is underway today. Actually, it's a runoff. Voters in Atlanta's 5th Congressional District will decide who will fill the remainder of the late Congressman John Lewis's term. Former Atlanta City Council member Kwanzaa Hall and former Morehouse College President Robert Franklin are the two candidates. Now, the winner will be a representative for only a few weeks, one of the shortest terms in the history of the House of Representatives. The winner of this runoff will not serve past January. That's because former state lawmaker, now Congresswoman-elect Nakima Williams, 
was officially elected on November 3rd. And if you are headed to the polls today, bundle up because the National Weather Service says it's going to be chilly this week. As a matter of fact, temperatures will remain in the low 40s this afternoon, dipping down below freezing tonight. And with cold temperatures and apparently winter approaching, several biotech companies are working to test and distribute a coronavirus vaccine. A panel of health experts will vote today on who will receive first priority once the vaccine is available. For example, healthcare workers, first responders, or those with certain medical conditions and folks 65 years old or older. Now, these panelists are actually gathering as part of an advisory committee convened by the Atlanta-based Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Meanwhile, here in our state, leaders are also preparing for a potential vaccine. George Governor Brian Kemp extended the state's public health emergency until January 8th yesterday. And there is one noteworthy difference. The governor added an extension in his order allowing nurses and pharmacists to administer a COVID-19 vaccine once it's available, including in a drive through setting. Now, this comes at the time of this broadcast as George is looking at 422,133 confirmed COVID-19 cases. 34,824 have been hospitalized, and of those, 6,497 were ICU admissions. And since the state began recording these numbers back in March, the number of deaths, 8,778. This is always according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. And finally, as the world continues to fight COVID-19, well, today, December 1st, also commemorates World AIDS Day. According to the U.N., the HIV virus has killed over 35 million people worldwide. 690,000 deaths were recorded last year alone. Here locally, many organizations are working to increase access in terms of testing and treatment. Aid Atlanta is extending its testing hours at its health care centers throughout the metro area until 8 p.m. today. And you can find more information on their website. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. You've heard these terms before. In the U.S., more than 7.1 million households are unbanked or underbanked. That means folks have limited or no access to a checking or savings account. However, pre-pandemic, there was a report released by the FDIC, which revealed the number of unbanked households in Atlanta had actually fallen several percentage points to about 5% in 2019. Still, there are stark disparities among various demographics. We know this. Now, the report from the FDIC also noted black, Latino, and Native American households were more likely to be underbanked than white households. You know, we've had this conversation many times on this program about the root causes of this, the lack of equity when it comes to accessing financial services, and, of course, the wealth gap that exists between white and black Americans. Well, now comes Atlanta-based rapper and entrepreneur Killer Mike and broadcast executive Ryan Glover. They've teamed up to launch a black-owned and operated digital banking platform called Greenwood. Now, Ryan Glover is also the chairman of Greenwood, and he joins me now. Ryan, thanks for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Rose. Let's go back in time a little bit. Can you recall the first time you opened a checking or savings account and how excited you were? I do. 
Howard University student. Yeah, um, oh, that's right. You are a bison. Listen, that's the only university that anyone should ever think about going to. <laughs> Period. End of story. The Mecca. There you go. H U U No. There you go. But you were a college student. Yeah. So yeah. I was a college student. I'm originally from the Bay Area after graduating from high school. Um, went to move to Washington, D.C. to go to Howard University. Um, I opened my first to answer your question, checking and savings account at Nations Bank. That mm. ended up being Bank of America. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, the experience was um, vague to say, to say the least. So that was kind of my first opportunity um, in dealing with the banking system and the banking structure also too. You know, um, I'm not going to date myself, but um, on campus, um, there was one line to get your books, and then there were credit card um, lines right next to getting your books, Mm -hmm. which uh, where I don't want to identify the credit cards, but they were predatory to say the least. Checking, savings, right, and credit experience as a teenager. I remember getting a credit card in college that I didn't even apply for. It just showed up in the mail. And here's a hint. I discovered I couldn't pay for it after I spent, I don't even know. I think I bought some Bo Jackson cross trainers, man. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. Touche. Yeah, there you go. The reason why we're having this conversation, because it all starts with financial literacy in a sense too. And Ryan, when you hear the statistics that I talked about coming into this segment about so many households being underbanked or unbanked, that's not lost on you. Not at all. So just to step back for a second, you know, 65% of Americans bank digitally. Um, There's zero solutions for black and the Latinx community. Um, Just to level set, Greenwood is a fintech modern digital bank for the culture. Mm -hmm. Um, Rose, so you know, um, we're full service banking in your hand, savings and spending accounts, Apple and Android pay, um, peer-to-peer transfers, mobile deposits, global ATM network, no hidden fees. And one of my favorite features that we will offer is two-day early pay. Um, But to answer your question directly, one of the main reasons why we launched Greenwood um, is to kind of solve three problems. One, um, the Black and Latinx community needs banking services to kind of convert income to generational wealth, Mm -hmm. non-predatory banking services. Uh, Two, uh, there needs to be a higher circulation of Black dollars in the African-American community, which really affects the entire community. our, our name, Greenwood, is owed to um, Black Wall Street sure. uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, where um, $1 circulated 36 times, which enabled those businesses to, to thrive in, in that community. Now, um, $1 in the African-American community circulates six hours. We've got to change that. And the, the third uh, problem that we will solve at Greenwood is the de- deployment of capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will identify qualified entrepreneurs, business owners, and, and creatives and equip them with the banking capital needed to grow their businesses. 
So, you know, those are the three facets of, of what Greenwood's mission is all about and why I believe authentically we uh, are resonating in such a short period of time in the community. You all are identifying as a digital banking platform, not a bank. I want to be clear for our That's listeners. Correct. That is absolutely correct. And, um, no, go ahead. And for someone listening that says, well, how will this be different from some of the other attempts, and not to call anybody out, but the, the green dots and all these other digital online banking platforms where you have to spend $9, $10 a month for the fee. It's more of like getting a prepaid debit card, which we've seen those targeted and marketing toward black and brown communities. How is Greenwood different? Yeah, so we believe that we are authentic to the community. Um, We believe that you know, we will offer other services outside of just checking and savings. Mm-hmm. Um, we will uh, roll out um, investment services, credit repair, uh, business and personal loans, um, lifestyle services like insurance and wills. Uh, we will also offer. Um, we we have come from the community. I personally have built businesses in the community, albeit music, television, Mm -hmm. film, now offering banking services. So I I am the community. I, you know, am not a quote unquote banker, but I definitely understand what business owners and just regular everyday individuals need in order to build wealth. Um, as well as fulfill their dreams. And that was really the mission. If you really want to know the truth, Rose, the reason why we started Greenwood. I personally bank at, won't mention any names, mm-hmm. uh, three or four traditional banks in the city. Sure. And I don't have personal relationships with those banks. Um, and, you know, they're, I build businesses. Those businesses that I've built weren't built on banking capital, um, like my co- other colleagues who uh, aren't part of the African-American community. So so that there needs to be change there, and Greenwood will help provide that change. Let's talk about your funding. Is Will we be fair to call this a, a fintech startup? Yes. So what we did was um, in July, we raised a seed capital, uh, to launch the business. Um, at the end of this year, we will move into a series A round of investing mm-hmm. um, to to scale the business, to grow the business, to give the, the, the business uh, a bigger go at serving the community that so desperately needs um, these banking services that we will offer. The model that you all are using, since this is a little bit different than the other ones that we talked about. Did you look at in terms of sustainability and were there some concerns or challenges that you all we were talking about online? And is there going to be an app? You know, will folks have to download an app? Connectivity is an issue for a lot of folks as well. Will there also be a website compatible to all of this? What is the model here for Greenwood? So absolutely, Rose. Full service banking in your hands. So, yes, 
you can access the, your accounts uh, via the web um, as well as your mobile device. Um, yes, challenges, there are multiple challenges for any new startup. I personally believe, listen, I've started businesses in multiple industries. And fortunately for me, people uh, remember the ones that are successful, not the ones that aren't. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I've had challenges with businesses that have succeeded and businesses that have failed. And, and Greenwood is no, is no different. It's highly regulated, the industry, which it should be. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we are serving or attempting to serve a community um, that has not been served well, one, two, doesn't, necess doesn't necessarily trust the banking industry as they should have, as they should not, mm -hmm. right? There's been decades of, of documented um, ills between the, the, the banking community and industry and, and our community. Um, and then thirdly, just the natural issues that you incur with, with doing business on a, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, Ambassador Young um, says, Ryan, you are more of a freedom fighter than a, a serial entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I personally take what our mission and what we're doing at Greenwood personally. Um, it is a business for sure, but it's a mission-driven business that we stay committed to day in and day out internally. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Ryan Glover. He's the co-founder and chairman of Greenwood. It's a new banking platform that looks to support black and Latino households and businesses. You started this conversation by telling me that we wanted a more personal experience. With this being a digital banking platform, uh, for folks who want that personal experience, there is no brick and mortar. And you're right, a lot of folks, some folks don't even go into a bank anymore because they do everything right. online or, or through their phone. How will you be able to, to give that personal relationship to your customers? Well, you know, social media, as my kids often know, is the thing to do, thing to be. So, so we live and now are driven by, from a communicative perspective, uh, so, social, the social media platform. So what, what we have found very successful is, you know, really showing images of who we truly are mm -hmm. that the media doesn't necessarily portray us to be socially in relation to Greenwood and the banking services that we provide. You know, a lot of times for a kid, you just have to show them that they can mm -hmm. be successful in order for them to be successful. And that connection, I believe, is very important visually to show who you are going to be and who you are in order to, to build trust in a community that hasn't had trust in a system for, for decades. So, so you so will have bankers, just like if I was, were to go into my local bank in the neighborhood and want to sit down with someone about opening a small business, you all have folks available to, to speak with people. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, customer service is high on our priority list. Um, to answer questions for our, our customers, um, 
to actually, you know, answer issues that they have, that they may have, or just questions in general about the services that we offer. Um, transparency is at the paramount of our communicative uh, relationship with each and every one of our of our customers, um, either live uh, or socially. Um, is there a target specific target audience within the black and Latino households that you're trying to reach? Ryan, are you trying to reach the millennials, Generation Z? No one cares about Generation X, which is my generation. So don't worry about it. You don't right. have to answer that. They don't, they don't <laughs> care about us. Well, what we found is the African-American and Latinx middle and upper class really aren't being ser- served properly. Um, yes, absolutely, the underbanked and the non-banked will will be a part of our customer base as it as it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, come one, come all, for sure. Um, but the middle class and upper class folks that have banking solutions, that have banking choices, um, we believe that Greenwood will provide a more authentic experience than the the uh, the solutions that the traditional banks have been given to that sector um, for for decades. Listen, I'm like I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. I am the te- the test study. Yeah, uh, I have relation. I have bank accounts spread across the city, and I can't name one personal banker that I have that I have. Um, at any of the traditional banks. And listen, so be it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That provided an opportunity. That provides an opportunity for 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 Greenwood that we will fill. Those are the products and services that you mentioned. Are we also, if not now, maybe in the future, you're talking about offering loans for mortgages or student loans. Uh, who knows when we come out of this pandemic, there's all the talk about how banks will be tightening their restrictions on on getting loans and and you and i both know the importance of loans particularly for a lot of kids going to college will y'all be able to offer that without a shadow of a doubt so yes let's just park at loans for a minute Um, we will offer business loans for qualified business owners Um, on the personal side home and mortgage loans will will be offered um, in 2021 and we are in partnership with a few HBCUs at the moment. Uh, hopefully, that list will will grow. Um, we feel like we feel that it's important to build relationships with one, the HBCU community, um, as a banking solution, um, but also to the students that go to HBCUs. We want to create relationships with them early and often, student loans, personal loans, debit, credit products, um, non-predatory for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, you know, as I mentioned earlier, my my banking relationship started started early, but it didn't start properly. Uh, we, we want to teach kids that, you know, the banking process could be one that could be beneficial especially for our young entrepreneurial minds that go to uh, historically black 
colleges and, and universities. Listen, I've been an entrepreneur all my life. If I would have known how to really utilize properly the banking system, uh, the way some of my counterparts did, um, you know, who knows? Mm -hmm. Since you're, you're focusing on black and as you call it, Latinx households, uh, English may not be the first, the primary language spoken. Will this be a, a bilingual banking platform for customers? Yes, we are working on uh, unilateral um, banking solutions for the Latinx community um, to provide um, loans, business, personal loans mm -hmm. for, for that community as well. Have you had inquiries from some of the bigger banking giants that might have wanted to partner with you all? Or have you had those kind of inquiries? That is so that is so funny you ask, but I cannot divulge that information. Soon come. Uh-huh. <laughs> Rose, you, you'll bring me on in a few weeks and we'll talk about it. Okay. You could break the news now if you want. But then let me ask you this. If that happens, and you know, folks can say, well, then are you then still truly a Black-owned and operated banking platform if you partner with this traditional financial giant yes we will always be majorly black owned uh, bank um if you know there are even on in the brick and mortar african-american banks sometimes partner sure. with other traditional banks as well so we are no different and in fact there are some african-american banks brick and mortar that are not majorly owned by African-Americans, but we will always be um, African-American majorly owned as we are now. All right. You and I both know that while we love technology, it sometimes it is not, uh, I won't say foolproof, but also cybersecurity crime proof. All it takes is one breach or something like that, and that can really do damage for a company. In terms of cybersecurity and online security, what are you all putting into that for Greenwood? Yeah, so that customer service and and cybersecurity that is of outside of the services that we provide, mm -hmm. outside of the authenticity, right? Uh, cybersecurity and customer services are a key most interest. Um, Actually, my business partner, Paul Judge, who is a technologist, mm -hmm. um, and it comes from and built uh, numerous cybersecurity companies, mm -hmm. um, is, ha has really built the foundation of what Greenwood will be based around cybersecurity, um, which is, again, at the forefront of trust with um, our, con our customer base. Uh, and finally, Ryan, as we wrap up, you talked about the first round at, at seed money, and you may have a lot of interest. Folks are excited. But as you know, because you've, you've opened businesses, you've been an executive, sustaining that capital, how you all plan to do that? Yep, that's a good question. So, you know, the good, the good news of what's been happening thus far with Greenwood has been extremely organic, mm -hmm. right? We have not spent 
um, the kind of capital that other new startups have in, have spent um, to kind of spread their message um, to the industries that they serve. It's a good, there's, there's two parts to that. One, it allows us to save money. Two, we, we see that the community really wants this as a solution, wants Greenwood as a solution. And they're just not signing up on our waiting list because it's fashionable to. Mm -hmm. um, they're signing up on our wait, waiting list in record numbers uh, because they believe that Greenwood is providing, is going to provide a service that is so desperately needed in the uh, community. We have over 250,000 folks on our wait list currently. And by the end of the year, that number should grow over 350,000, which is unheard of. We'll launch our first products, Q1 of 21, and we're slated to um, launch our products with serving uh, uh, close to a half a million customers um, in the first year. Will y'all be ready? Unheard of. Will y'all be ready, Ryan? We ready. Well, listen, we ready. We are absolutely ready. Listen, my grandmother says, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. So we are ready. And you said quarter one, when can folks anticipate that they will start doing banking with Greenwood? Quarter one, 2021, no later than March. And finally, Mr. Chairman, all eyes will be on you and Killer Mike, but you are the chairman. So any concerns you have right now as y'all head into 2021, getting ready to launch? We are excited. We're excited about uh, uh, our efforts in serving the community. Um, yes, you know, anything worth doing is difficult. We understand that but we are up for the challenge. Ryan Glover, co-founder and chairman of Greenwood, a new banking platform looking to support black and Latino households and businesses. And of course, your co-founder is Killer Mike. Tell Killer Mike to pick up the phone. We call him too. But, uh, Ryan, you have to text him. <laughs> messing with Killer Mike. <laughs> Ryan, I appreciate you taking the time. I, I really do. Come back and let us know how this venture is progressing. Our listeners, I'm sure, would appreciate Thank you, Rose. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Here on Closer Look, we often talk about the factors or tentacles, as I like to call them, that lead to a good quality of life. Now, we've talked about affordable housing, education, quality health care, workforce development, and transit and mobility. 
We've talked about it a lot. Yes, we have. And we'll continue to. In fact, about this time last year, we spent a whole week exploring Atlanta's evolving transit landscape through the series Gridlocked, What's Moving Atlanta? And I'm proud to say we received an award for it. And we asked you what you would like to see changed about the region's transit landscape. I think I'd like to see Georgia's transit landscape change a lot first for like the traffic flow and the way like the lanes are marked just so that it just kind of seems like it's always a mess and drivers are like shifting into each other's lanes, cutting people off, cutting off pedestrians. So I think more clarity in that. And also, yes, designated bike lanes. I'd love to see that. And just clear road markings and more options. I wish we had an answer for all the traffic, but I would like to see MARTA extend a little more outward. I would love to have some of the transportation buses kind of situated where we can get on the bus and they take us to work maybe. I would love to see the city's infrastructure reflect the tendencies of the universe to become more focused on other modes of transportation. So more bike lanes. I think curbing speeding is really important to me. I think we need to lower the speed limit in this city on all city roads. Yeah, I think design more than anything else. I would like for MARTA to go more places. I think a lot of people are now more conscious of public transportation than ever before, and especially with how the traffic has become. And so I would like to somehow get public transportation more accessible for more people in, in more places. That's what I would like to see. I would like to see a fundamental shift in how we approach transit. I think that the state of Georgia in particular uh, needs to put a hard stop on spending for new fossil fuel infrastructure. That that time has passed and it's time we explored other options. So that's what you all told us last year. Now, what we didn't ask, because who knew, we didn't ask about a pandemic and how that might affect the future of transit, not just here in Georgia, but throughout the nation. So some challenges still remain. There have been some improvements. And now there's a new report that takes a look at the state's current travel and traffic trends and funding needs. It's called Moving Georgia Forward. And joining me now to talk about this is Rocky Morietti. He's the director of policy and research at the National Transportation Research Nonprofit Group, also known as TRIP. They're a national nonprofit that studies transportation-related data. Rocky, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Rose, I appreciate the opportunity to come on your show. So you heard what folks around the region, when we asked them to chime in on what they would like to see in terms of our transit and mobility needs and their desires. What stood out for you from those voices you heard? You know, obviously, you know, the issue that we're all dealing with is, is the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Certainly in Georgia, we saw we saw across the country a tremendous drop in travel. In Georgia, vehicle travel was down 39% in April. Now by September, it was only down by 9%, and that's comparing it to the previous year. So you know we're seeing what we're happening around the country, this tremendous drop. And, and, and then 
largely coming back, not, not all of it, although that data is two months old. Mm-hmm. I think what everyone's asking is, is what comes beyond the pandemic? You know, how do we plan for that from a transportation perspective? Uh, Georgia is one of the fastest growing states in the country. Uh, the state's going to add another two and a half million people by 2040. So you've got this tremendous growth coming at you. The state in 2015 had put forward a significant transportation program now is looking at what comes next. And at the federal level, the federal surface transportation program expires next fall. It was extended recently by Congress for another year. So Congress next year will be grappling with what comes next in terms of funding. What's absolutely true in the Atlanta region and in Georgia, and the report we just put together certainly underlines that, is that transportation agencies just don't have adequate resources both to maintain the existing system Mm -hmm. and to make the type of improvements that are going to be necessary. Certainly some of your callers, I I think, touched on some of those needs. So in other words, yes, Georgia needs to probably have more options and improve, but before they can do that, they have to fix what's already here, which is obviously we start with the infrastructure. Everybody wants more options, but before we can even talk about implementing more options, you kind of kind of fix what we got going on right here. Is that pretty much what you're saying? Well, it, it, that's a, an excellent baseline approach. And if you look at the report that we just did, which was looking more at local roads, we, we, mm-hmm. we surveyed all of the counties in the state. We reached out to the state transportation department for information on the bridges. And then we looked at safety data. We found around a quarter of county-maintained roads in the, in the greater Atlanta area. It was a 10-county region, are in poor condition. And the county said, overall, they only have about 72% of the amount of funding they need to just maintain the system. About 10% of the state bridges and about 6% in the Atlanta metro area are deficient, partly because they're old and they're worn out and they need to be repaired. Mm-hmm. But a lot of these bridges on major roads in the Atlanta area aren't strong enough to carry the kind of traffic, particularly truck traffic that they need to carry. So you've got a lot of older bridges that need to be modernized. And then most critically, on average, over 400 people per year are being killed in the Atlanta metro area in traffic crashes. Mm-hmm. Not all motorists, We're also that also includes bicyclists and pedestrians. We really need to make the entire system safer, uh, again, for motorists, but also for bicycle and pedestrians. Let me ask you this then, because this is an area, obviously, that you are an expert in. When And we've had this conversation so many times on this program, Rocky, and people hear that. But the question is, so where do we begin? Because if you're talking about infrastructure, let's be really clear. You've been to the Atlanta area. Let's talk about Atlanta's roads and streets. Infrastructure-wise, what more can be done because the streets are already so narrow? Folks get upset when you talk about if you're going to make a two-way street into a one-way street. So... How do you do that when the infrastructure may not present itself for these changes to happen? Particularly when you're talking about reducing fatalities. Well, certainly when you look at at fatalities, uh, it's really a lot of incremental improvements. It's it's looking in an urban setting. uh, It's looking at intersections. Are are there turn lanes where there should be turn lanes? Um, Do you have bicycle and pedestrian facilities that keep them safe? Uh, at the end of the day, uh, obviously, uh, we're, we're seeing a tremendous increase in, in bicycling across the country. Uh, I, I know that Atlanta, in, in, in their, their, their sort of uh, connection of their, of their parks network, have, have done really, I think, you know, uh, leadership at a national level in terms of improving access uh, within the, the, the region in terms of, of a trails network. 
all of those things come together. I, I think really in, a, in an ideal world, you're looking at what are all of the needs. Uh, you know, you, you heard from, from your callers that they wanna see uh, a transportation system that, that, that includes the additional mm -hmm. uh, options of bike and pedestrian. They wanna see uh, include in, improved public transit. Uh, you also are seeing the, the region growing uh, there's an expectation post-COVID we'll probably see uh, fewer people necessarily uh, in downtown offices. They may have more options to, uh, to spread out a bit more. Th those are interesting implications for transportation. What the initial data is showing is evening rush hours are as bad as they've ever been, but in the mornings, fewer people are traveling to work. Uh, but we see more overall congestion throughout the day as people have more options. So, I think everyone in the transportation world is trying to anticipate uh, the type of improvements that are going to be needed over the next several years, given uh, what we're seeing from, from the public in terms of, of changing behavior. Your report found 22% of the roads in Georgia were in, quote, poor condition. And then we come down to Atlanta, that number is a little bit higher at 24% of what you said county-maintained roads were in poor condition. When you say poor, and I want you to define this for our listeners, poor to the standpoint that they're so dangerous or poor they just need repair? These are our roads that the, the highway engineers at the county level say we need to repair these roads. Now, for example, they also said in this report that of the, the roads in the Atlanta area that currently need resurfacing, they can only do 14% of that resurfacing this year. Mm -hmm. And of the roads that are, are at a point where they need reconstruction, they can only do about 10% this year. Uh, the, the challenge with, with infrastructure is kind of like maintaining your home. If you, the further you fall behind, the harder it is to catch up. Mm -hmm. uh, and so certainly uh, you, you want to have the resources at the local level to make those improvements. Now, if you look at, at the state level uh, where, where they have clearly um, put a lot of emphasis on the need to address freight movement throughout the state. It's obviously what makes the economy run. Uh, the latest data suggests by 2040, the, the value of freight being moved in Georgia will double and the weight, which probably correlates more closely to the amount of trucks out there will increase by about another 50%. So, you know, at the state level, they're looking at, uh, you know, capacity, potentially truck lanes, uh, in parts of Georgia. And then you saw what, what's happened in Atlanta with the addition of managed lanes. Um, that's proving quite useful across the country because you can, you know, those adding a couple of managed lanes obviously come at a high price tag, but you can go ahead and use the managed lanes to pay for them. And what we've seen in, in Atlanta across the country is when you move a, some vehicles onto a managed lane, because they're willing to pay the extra to, for, for that convenience of it, it also reduces congestion on the other lanes. So it really, from a transportation perspective, you need to be using every tool in the toolkit, mm -hmm. recognizing there's a few few unknowns in terms of, of trans, transportation behavior post-pandemic. Uh, but one thing's for sure in the Atlanta area, there's gonna be more growth uh, and more demand for mobility. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Rocky Morietti. He's the Director of Policy and Research at the National Transportation Research Nonprofit Group, also known as TRIP. And we're talking about a, a report that's looking at the state's current travel and traffic trends and funding needs. It's called Moving Georgia Forward. 
Well, Rocky, this may seem like a very simplistic question, but I'm sure someone listening says, okay, so this is just something simple as, hey, Georgia, like a lot of states, needs more funding, and then all this will be fixed. Is that simply what you're saying? The reality, of course, is is, is that every state, uh, and, and Georgia's no exception, has had a very, very difficult year with the pandemic. There are, are long-range fiscal challenges that states are going to be facing. And so you really have to, to look at transportation spending as an investment. Uh, you know, certainly you're trying to maintain the system you have now, but, but ultimately the public have to support those investments. And, 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 and whether through gas taxes at, at the federal and state level, property taxes or sales tax or other means, ultimately they're the ones that are gonna fund those improvements. And so transportation agencies have to have the, the, the trust of the public that they're gonna make those improvements that are necessary. But, but again, if you don't make those investments, which obviously in the short run are very critical because it, it supports a lot of jobs in, in the construction related sectors, but more critically in the long term, almost every job in the state relies to some extent on, the, on mobility, mm-hmm. the ability to move your goods. It's the mo- ability to attract people to your job sites so really, it, it is incumbent to have the, this ongoing dialogue with the public in terms of what what are you seeing, what do you want, and let's make sure we have to be willing to pay for it. And we should note also, Rocky, for our listeners, because what we're talking about is Georgia, which is just a small snapshot of a bigger picture here, a bigger problem, because in the report, your organization notes the U.S. has a $146 billion backlog in roadway safety improvements. How do we get here? The, the AAA Safety Foundation did really an amazing report two years ago where they looked, they worked with a, a variety of, of traffic safety engineers and they looked at what would happen if, if you put in rumble strips, for example, mm-hmm. a very cost-effective method of keeping people from going off the roadway. You made sure lane markings were clear. You really made the cost-effective improvements that were necessary and the findings of that report were, were pretty incredible. It, it showed that if you were making those investments, you would save over 3,000 lives per year across the country. Mm. Um, so, so we know that there is this tremendous backlog. I, I think we all would like to think we're out there driving our vehicles or riding our bikes or, you, you know, as a pedestrian on safe as possible environment. We certainly want that for our children and our loved ones. But again, that, that takes a very systematic approach by transportation agencies with adequate resources to look at those improvements that are necessary. On top of that, the public clearly are, are demanding a higher standard for our, our urban transportation systems, but also our rural transportation systems. We, we want the ability to support our, our economy. What we've seen during COVID is a tremendous increase in freight movement. You know, I said vehicle travel is down about 9% right now in Georgia. Freight travel across the country is up 10%. Well, that's that's not a surprise. Look at the, the velocity of goods moving around the country mm-hmm. uh, to support our lifestyles. And 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 post-pandemic, that may 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 soften somewhat, but but we're we're definitely a society that relies on tremendous mobility, not just personal, but also commercial. So so that's where that, that's critical, but I think it's also quite uh, clear, you know, from your callers and what we're seeing across the country, people want a high level amenities in their transportation system. They want the mobility in their vehicles, 
but they also want those facilities that allow bicycling and, and pedestrian movement. And we see how it supports economic growth. So it's really tying those together, again, building public and legislative support for those types of investments. Well, and listeners have always told us, too, they would like to see fewer cars on the road, fewer vehicles on the road. Okay, we understand that. And then obviously with your Lyfts and Ubers, and that has played a major role in how people get to work here in Atlanta. Scooters were a big deal here. But now with this pandemic changing the way how we all get around and how we all want to get around, folks may not be comfortable then getting into an Uber or Lyft. So now we go back to maybe folks using their own car. So post-pandemic, are you all forecasting any other trends or shifts in trends that we saw pre-pandemic that we're going to see post-pandemic? This is something that we're all struggling, and I'm not sure that anyone knows precisely those answers. Clearly, businesses are revisiting their models. There, there may be somewhat less centralization, but, but I also don't think that, that most people in the long run are going to want to work from home. And, and if that means more satellite offices or, or, or greater flexibility in terms of, of moving further out in, in regions uh, to get at, at, at you know, better home prices, all of those are going to have transportation implications. It's certainly the, 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 the split between private vehicles and, and, and either the Ubers and the Lyfts and, and, and those types of, of transportation options or traditional public transit have shifted during the pandemic. But we'll, we'll see beyond that. But I still think ultimately people value a high level of mobility and certainly I suspect that we're going to see post-pandemic and the numbers are, are starting to bear this out, similar levels of, of transportation and, and, and vehicle travel, notwithstanding, I think, greater levels of, of bicycling and walking. Mm-hmm. In fact, your report addresses a lot of recommendations here, but I'm curious, in this report, did you also talk to Georgia transportation and transit officials here? More specifically on, on the condition, we we're ta- talking to county governments to get a better sense of, of their budgets. And then at the state level, it was it was really more looking at, at core infrastructure issues, particularly long-term their challenges with the bridges. And really, it's clear that they want, want to harden the bridge system so that the bridges are not only kept in good condition, but your major trunk line roads in the state can move the types of, of freight and emergency vehicles and buses that are obviously very critical to the economy and just overall quality of life. And Rocky, as we wrap up, I'm curious, is there a state out there that pretty much has a good handle on their transportation and mobility options for its residents? Well, I, I think you, you see a, a number of states you know, looking at terms of, of long-term mobility and what those challenges are going to look like. Um, I, you know, I would hate to point out one state and, and, and someone quibble with me on it, but what we're seeing increasingly is states are, are, are looking to, to, to recognize that they're in the business of providing high levels of mobility. And so they want to make sure that, that they have in place a network of highways and bridges that support high level of, of mobility, but that also they're working with local governments to make sure those other amenities are in place. And, and recognizing that by improving those streetscapes and, and making those types of improvements, it really, it helps the overall community move forward. And you can't really achieve your long-term economic and quality of life goals without 
a well thought out and well funded transportation plan. And we should note, and we're going to put a link to this report on our website, because, you know, I got to tell you, Rocky, when I'm looking through this report and I'm looking at the most (laughs) deficient bridges and I've traveled on most of these bridges all the time, Howe Mill Road being number one and and Marietta Road and Brown Road. And I mean, when folks see this, you know, (laughs) and then the year that these bridges were built, I mean, folks are going to want action. Who should read this report other than elected officials? Well, well, certainly the, the public in Georgia. Ultimately, through, through their interaction with their elected officials, really ultimately make the decisions in terms of the investment. You pointed out you're driving over a deficient bridge. Well, you're one of the 2.6 million Atlantans every day driving over deficient bridges. And, and I don't know now, Rocky. I'm going to change my route. Again, I, I don't think that these bridges are, you're in any danger. And, and you know, the transportation agencies at the state and local level do an amazing job of, of maintaining the system. I think you saw that in Georgia a couple of years ago when you had that bridge burned down. But again, the real challenge is, 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 is it's a warning sign on the dashboard. It's saying these bridges can't carry large vehicles. So they're headed in the wrong direction. And, and you've got uh, a major metropolitan area and some of those bridges just weren't built for the type of travel that's occurring. And so, so I, I think our call at TRIP is, is to keep an eye on the future and be planning to put the transportation system that you need in Atlanta and throughout Georgia a uh, reality. Rocky Morietti is the Director of Policy and Research at the National Transportation Research Group, also known as TRIP. Rocky, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's an issue that's very important to our listeners, so I appreciate you all with this report and appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Rosa. appreciate the opportunity. All right. Take care now. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash closerlook. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen to Sounds Like ATL Saturday evenings at 7 on WABE and WABE.org. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.